This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Tuesday the 7th of September 2021 and we are going to deal with um, a really important issue today because we've said many times on Coronacast there's no point in getting to 80% if the, that's just an average and other communities are not properly immunised and well immunised. And of course, our First Nations community is incredibly important. And we, that's what we're going to cover on this first part of Chronicast today. That's right. We've got our colleague in the ABC Science Unit, Tani Jash, who is herself a Ewan Camilleroy woman who's been looking into this. Welcome, Tani. Hi, Tegan. Hi, Norman. Thanks for having me. So, Tani, we know that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are at high risk of health inequalities, and yet there seems to have been a lag in getting these first peoples vaccinated. In the people that you've been talking to, what have they described as being the biggest barriers here? Well, I think there's a few things um, to note here um, that is really important. So with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities across the country, I think each uh, community is facing a different challenge in their own way. So talking to experts up in uh, Northern Territory and Western Australia, we're hearing hesitancy being one of the areas of concern. And then when you when I've spoken to people in New South Wales and Victoria, it's more around the supply and accessing those vaccines, which has been a barrier for a lot of people. What do you think is driving hesitancy? So I think there's a few things actually that are, are driving this hesitancy. And we're also... I think it's really important to note that it's not just an Indigenous thing around hesitancy. We're seeing this also in non-Indigenous people as well. But when it comes to hesitancy within Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, communities, um, there are a few factors that have contributed to this. So when we're looking at, you know, when the government prioritised Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the phase uh, one rollout of the vaccine when AstraZeneca side effects were kind of being reported, that made a lot of people feel a little bit reluctant to get the vaccine. And that was the only vaccine available at, at the time. So, you know, there were some people um, that kind of might, maybe, maybe maybe felt a little bit like a, a guinea pig in a way, I guess you could say. Right, because they're being prioritised at the same time as his hearing about these emerging side effects. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and we didn't have an option for Pfizer or any other vaccine um, during that phase one rollout. So, you know, it's a little bit scary. And then some other uh, contributing factors were things like misinformation that have been coming about from particular faith groups and also people of influence on social media have also been spreading some of this message. But I think also when we're looking at communities where COVID hasn't really touched, people are feeling quite safe when you go into lockdown because you know, you're locked down and the cases have been relatively low or, or minimal and then they come out and they're, and they're feeling um, all right not having the vaccine. But when you look at um, communities like people based in New South Wales or Victoria where we've gone through quite a large number of cases, people are a little don't, don't seem to uh, face that hesitancy as much. Tiny, are there particular narratives on social media? You hear that there are, particularly young men on Aboriginal, in Aboriginal communities. There's not a particular narrative. I think it's more just around people feeling safe in their community, not having to have uh, the vaccine. But also there was a really interesting point that one of the health experts that I spoke to raised that when, we, when we're when uh, we hearing these numbers every day in the press conferences, we're not hearing how many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are actually being infected with the virus. So for a lot of Aboriginal people, it seems like it's a, a non-Indigenous thing when you don't hear 
what proportion of those cases are actually of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's a double-edged sword, though, because you, when in the past when you've reported on things like alcohol use and so on, you've, it's been t- discussed as stigmatising Aboriginal communities. So you, it's the devil in the deep blue sea to some extent. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's where the Aboriginal community-controlled organisations really come into play and play a really important role because, you know, our experience with the government in the past hasn't been that great. So having our leaders and uh, Aboriginal health workers on the ground there working with community and in community to make people feel safe is really important. Well, let's talk about that. What are some of the solutions that the experts that you're talking to are saying is the way forward here? Yeah, so when we're looking at some of the regional and remote parts of the country, if there isn't an Aboriginal community-controlled organisation there on the ground, a lot of the medical services are working with um, organisations like the Royal Flying Doctors Service to get out to some of those regional areas and making sure people have access to the vaccine. And then also they're doing vaccination drives specifically for Aboriginal people in places where, you know, we come together as a community, obviously in a socially distanced way and in a safe way, but just to make sure that people are informed around the vaccine and understanding the benefits and um, can do that with somebody that they trust and feel comfortable with. What sort of conversations have you been having with your friends and loved ones and how have they shifted over the course of the pandemic? Yeah, so I think what's really what I've seen in my own family actually is when you know, a couple people get the vaccine and you can see that, you know, the side effects are really minimal. It makes everyone else feel really comfortable and safe and and more inclined to then go and get the vaccine themselves. So that's been something really positive in my family. And it's really sad to hear these stories of people ending up in hospital, but it also um, is important, I think, to really paint that picture of the reality of this virus if we don't protect ourselves and don't protect our family. Well, Tani, thank you very much for giving us that report. Thank you, Norman. Thanks, Tegan. Tani Dash is Norman's and my colleague in the ABC Science Unit and a Ewan Camilleroy woman. And Norman, of course, the backdrop to all of this is the rising case numbers around Australia. And yesterday, New South Wales released modelling of what the next few weeks might look like. I think it's expected news. Um, the modelling from the University of Sydney has the peak in New South Wales Towards the end of September, the New South Wales government thinks it's in the, you know a, bit, a week or so sooner than that, uh, which is great, which means that the combination of extreme social distancing and vaccination is starting to click in and the, the, the curve will turn and the R value does seem to be coming down to 1.1. So that's the number of people that an infected person is going to pass it on to. Is it the social distancing or the vaccination that's driving this downward shift? Well, it's both together. You've probably achieved the maximum you're going to achieve from the lockdown. And therefore, the extra twist to the curve is from vaccination. In other words, what's been happening with contact tracing and lockdown is that you've held the numbers to whatever it is, 1,200 or so a day. You could get up to 2,000. It would have been at 10,000 a day at the beginning of August if you not had lockdown and contact tracing. So it's worked, but it's not worked well enough. So the extra element here is vaccination. But the peak in intensive care unit admissions isn't expected until October. Well, that's because when you get infected with COVID-19, it takes quite a few days to get seriously ill from it. So you're fine the first week. It's the second week where you get sick and where you potentially, as they say, fall off the cliff into serious illness. 
And therefore, if you get the peak a couple of weeks from now, it's going to be a couple of weeks after that before you see the surge in hospital cases. And remember, even though you're coming off the top of the curve, you've got a backlog of thousands of cases a day squeezing through into the system. What are we expecting to see in Victoria based on what's happening in New South Wales? So I'm not sure how much there is to learn from New South Wales, apart from the fact that they're not going to be able to get it back down to zero. Um, They're on an exponential growth curve that's behind New South Wales. And until they get to vaccination levels of New South Wales, they can't expect that extra kick in from vaccination to turn the uh, RF, the effective reproduction number, back down to below one. So they've got a way to go because Victoria is a little bit behind New South Wales in terms of vaccination rates. And there was some interesting data out of China that kind of shows what happens when someone gets the virus and then passes it on to other people. Yeah, this was a study of uh, 730 people in China with uh, COVID-19 diagnosis, and they looked about nearly 9,000 close contacts of these people to look at the trend, you know, how, the, how the virus transmitted. Um, this was last year, pre-Delta, um, and what they showed was, which is kind of known by contact tracers at the moment, but just confirms that, was your chances of infecting others, you were at your most contagious two days before the symptoms came on. And in fact, that's what contact tracers do in Australia is that they ask you when your symptoms first started, they go back 48 hours and those are the primary contacts that they choose. And then if you if you are positive as a primary contact, they go back 48 hours before that. And then three days after the onset of symptoms in the index patient. So that five-day window. It's a five-day window, which gives you some comfort because often people test positive for days and days and days after they've, um, after they've got symptoms. But this suggests that you're only infectious for a relatively short period after the symptoms come out. The thing that really interested me about this paper is it said that people who didn't have symptoms, people who were asymptomatic, were more likely to, if they passed it on to someone else, those people were more likely to be asymptomatic as well, which is kind of good and bad. Like on one hand, if you don't have symptoms, maybe the people you pass it on to have a milder illness, but it does seem to be like you could see these invisible chains of transmission maybe happening as well. Yes. So what you've said is right, is that it's the insidious nature of this virus, that it spreads when you don't know you've got it. And the people they spread it to don't know they've got it either. The good news there is, though, of course, is if you're asymptomatic, you're not likely to give severe disease to another person. And that's probably because when you're asymptomatic, you're producing less virus and the severity of the disease is thought to be significantly related to your viral load. So if you get a whopping dose of the virus, you're more likely to get severe disease than if you get a mild dose of the virus. And if you're asymptomatic, you seem to be passing less virus to another person. I remember you hypothesising that very early in the pandemic, Norman. It's almost like you're a doctor and you know what you're talking about here. I wouldn't go that far. I really (laughs) would not go that far. And that's all we've got time for on today's Coronacast. Your questions, your comments, send them to abc.net.au slash coronacast. And we'll see you tomorrow.